Now, anyone who knows anything about young children knows that they learn by imitation. They learn by copying the behaviors that they see being modeled for them. Whether it's behaviors being modeled by their parents or by other children or by strangers on TV, children learn much through imitation. This is, of course, why it is crucial to model good behaviors to one's children. Good parents do their best to control their own behavior around their children so that they don't pick up the worst parts of their character. And of course, good parents try to control who their children play with. Good parents don't allow their children to watch any and everything that's available to watch on TV or on the internet. All this is because we know that as far as examples of character and behavior go, there are good examples that we can and should imitate, and there are bad examples that must be avoided. And it is this simple principle of imitating what is good and avoiding what is bad in the context of the Christian life that is our focus for this morning. Because just as parents take care to guide the behavior of their children, the Apostle Paul here took great care to make sure that his spiritual children, the Philippians, knew what kind of models they were to look for and which to avoid. And so what proceeds from verse 17 of chapter 3 is Paul's admonition to the Philippians to be imitators of him and also imitators of others who themselves imitate the good characteristics and beliefs that the apostles had taught and themselves learned from Christ Jesus. Now right away, some might think that that sounds a bit conceited. After all, what makes Paul so special that he should be imitated? Well, first of all, it was his duty to be an imitatable example to other believers. It was his job. Peter says in chapter 5 of his first epistle that elders or pastors should be examples to the flock. A leader in the church should be the sort of person that indeed could be held out as an exemplary Christian. This is also made clear in 1 Timothy, Timothy 3, where Paul outlines the qualifications for leadership in the church, which basically boils down to being a mature Christian. So it was Paul's duty to be a mature, model Christian, because as a shepherd of the flock, all eyes would be on him, seeing how he led, and then the sheep would follow him. So it is not conceded that Paul would point to himself as an example that the Philippians could imitate, since that's all part of being a good leader and a good shepherd. And if anyone would still want to accuse Paul of being prideful, remember that it's not as if Paul saw himself as the pinnacle of perfect, mature Christianity. While it was true that Paul needed to be and was a mature Christian, he knew that he wasn't perfect. Perfection wasn't his basis for saying in verse 17, join in imitating me. Just a few verses prior, we see this in verse 12, we see that Paul readily admitted to being imperfect while still straining toward the goal that was eternal life with Christ. So Paul was not prideful. He knew of his weaknesses and imperfections. Thus, when he says, join in imitating me, we are to understand him in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Copy me insofar as I have copied Christ Jesus. So we can see that Paul's intention was ultimately that believers imitate the Lord Jesus 
rather than imitating mere men. Paul wasn't interested in passing on his own habits and behaviors, but only those that Christ Jesus himself displayed while he was on the earth. We know, we know these things, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and many others. So with that said, we can now examine the reason for Paul warning the Philippians to imitate him. And you'll see why I frame it that way as a warning. Not just as a good idea, but it's a warning. It's made clear in verse 18, which says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What we see here is that there were people in Philippi who were bad examples. People who were to be avoided. Their characteristics, behaviors, and ways of thinking were not to be emulated in any way, shape, or form. But before we get into this, I want us to become familiar with the way that Paul structures this warning. First, he tells the Philippians to imitate good examples, and then he goes on to warn them of the bad examples by describing their wicked characteristics. He then concludes by contrasting what was seen in the bad examples with truths about those who are good examples. So there's contrasting going on here. And thus, his words of encouragement in chapter 4, verse 1, they flow from that encouragement. So let's start looking at these bad examples. Now there's some debate over the exact identity of the person being referred to here in chapter 3. Some prefer to see Paul as talking more generally about immoral people who call themselves believers. Yet, the view that I think makes more sense, because of the context of chapter 3, is that Paul is still referring to the group known as the Judaizers. Just to remind you who the Judaizers were, these were a group of people who professed faith in Jesus Christ, but they insisted that in order to be saved, one needed to convert to Judaism. So one needed to keep the Mosaic law and observe all the Jewish customs and traditions so, men needed to be circumcised, uh, you needed to follow the Jewish dietary laws, uh, observe the holy days, make sacrifices at the temple, and so on. And of course, we know this idea to be heresy of the highest degree. This false teaching destroys the gospel, which says that salvation comes by the grace of God, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and not through works of the law. So it shall already be in our minds that these Judaizers were a dangerous group because of their doctrine. And the situation is made worse when we remind ourselves that this group claimed allegiance to Christ. This is a big part of what made them so dangerous. This is why Paul felt the need to warn the Philippians not to imitate them and why he warned the Philippians to look out for them in verse 2 of the same chapter. Because of their claim to be believers, one could end up following their sinful doctrine and practices. Thus Paul commands the eyes of the Philippians to be active. At the beginning of the chapter, you can see this in verse 2, he says, Look out! In other words, mark and identify those evildoers and beware of them. Know who they are. Name names and sound the alarm when serious false teaching is being promoted. And now at the end of the chapter, he again commands the Philippians' eyes. Look at me instead. Look also at those who follow the example that I have set by imitating Christ Jesus. 
Do not imitate those Judaizers. Do not imitate any of the evildoers. So Paul's goal of averting the Philippians' eyes away from the Judaizers was so important and necessary because the Judaizers weren't the sort of people who would openly say that they opposed Christ and everything that he stood for. Rather, they were the sort of people who could mislead you because they only had good things to say about Jesus. They claimed with their mouth that they believed in him. Yet upon closer examination of their beliefs, it was seen that they were in fact enemies of the cross of Christ. By their beliefs, they, they opposed everything that the cross represents. So this is why Paul urges the Philippians to model only that which they saw from him. Because there were other models who, if one were not careful, could be mistaken for born-again believers who were worthy of imitation. But in fact, they were not. And this is an understandable concern that we can all relate to. The events that we're talking about took place some 2,000 years ago, but even today, these days, we are all too familiar with those who are Christians in name only. Those who have the outward appearance of being a follower of Christ. Yet examination of their beliefs shows that, really, they're enemies of the cross. And some of these people, sadly, are pastors with large congregations. They speak well of Christ, and they seem so kind and loving. Surely they must be good models to imitate. But sadly, those who follow and imitate them end up doing things like shunning the suffering for righteousness' sake. They opt instead to copy their role models' obsession with things like health, wealth, and prosperity. Those who imitate them end up chasing after earthly pleasures instead of storing up heavenly treasures. And we all know the kinds of so-called Christians that I'm talking about. And if not, I will name them. False teachers like Crestwell Dollar, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, and the list goes on. These people can seem to some to be Christians because they pray and sing and they have all the spiritual songs and they call the name of Jesus. But Paul identifies them and people like them as wicked by the characteristics that we're soon going to look at. And so he says to us, do not imitate them. They don't model good Christian character. Instead, follow me as I follow Christ. Thus we must be on guard for those who seem to be sheep but are merely only wearing sheep's clothing and inwardly are ravenous wolves. And here's the thing, I want us to be very sober-minded about this issue. Because the names that I just called are names that I'm sure most of us are already familiar with and already recognize as evildoers. But I want us to recognize that it is possible for us to let our guard down. We may think that these enemies of the cross could never get so close to us that we could be in danger of imitating them. But we can't allow ourselves to be lulled into a false sense of security. The kind of people that Paul warns us about can very easily come in among us and get so close to us that through our affections for them, we end up imitating them. I say this because it seems to me that many of the people that Paul is warning about were close to both himself and the Philippians. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. For many of whom I often told you, and now tell you, listen, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Why the tears? Well, perhaps their bad examples were leading people astray and this was causing Paul great anguish. That is certainly possible. But consider this. Perhaps it was the case that many of these Judaizers appeared at one time to be fellow compatriots in the faith. Perhaps both Paul and the believers in Philippi had formed close bonds with some of them and had come to really, really care for them. And thus when, in the course of time, it was revealed that the faith of these men was not genuine, and they began to more blatantly manifest their wickedness, true believers like Paul would have been left with sorrow and tears for those whom they had come to care about. That is a possibility. So what that means, quite frankly, is that we need to keep our eyes on our friends. Again, because we tend to imitate each other. Antics and mannerisms and so on. But also we imitate beliefs and ideas. And that gets more likely the closer you are in relationship to someone. So we need to be asking ourselves, do the people who we are closest to, the ones who profess Christ, do they manifest the characteristics that Paul lists in verse 19? Is their God their belly? Do they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things? Brethren, this is hard. It's not at all comfortable to think that one of your beloved brothers and sisters in Christ might actually be an enemy of the cross. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there needs to be an atmosphere of mistrust and suspicion in the church. Not at all. But we do need to be aware of who we imitate. Paul commands us to. So we need to keep our powers of discernment sharp and our eyes open, lest we be led astray. Now, we'll learn what we are to look out for as we examine what Paul says about these enemies of the cross. My hope is that we can learn to recognize bad examples when we see them. So the first thing we see about these bad examples is that they were enemies of the cross of Christ. Let us take a moment to think about what that means. Now, the cross has come to be known as the very symbol of our religion. It is the symbol of Christianity. And this is because the cross represents the, the suffering of the Son of God for the sins of the world. The cross was where our Lord Jesus atoned for our sins and bore the wrath of God, being nailed to it by Roman soldiers at the demand of the Jews. The cross was where the love of God towards us sinners was seen most vividly. And the cross was where Satan and sin were put to an open shame and dealt the decisive blow. And so the cross, that rugged, blood-stained, ugly, terrifying instrument of torture and death used by the Romans to shame and execute people has become to the whole world a sign that there is forgiveness of sins in and through Christ Jesus. That is an amazing transformation. It's a sign that a man can be saved if he puts away confidence in himself and rests his faith upon his Savior who died on that cross and rose to life again. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be in awe at how God took such a horrible image. A man, brutalized and bloody, arms outstretched in anguish, nailed to a cross made of wood. God has taken that image and turned it into a symbol of hope and love. God has turned it into an image of beauty. You understand that? 
It is a beautiful thing to look upon the cross. Something which we look upon with delight rather than turning our eyes away. God has taken this sorrowful cross and made it into the greatest symbol of joy that the earth has ever seen. Brethren, after hearing what this cross represents, who could hate it? Let me continue. That cross upon which the only begotten Son of God died is a symbol that man's sin was of such serious consequence that God himself had to pay man's debt. The cross is a symbol that no work or good deed that man could muster on his own could suffice to please a holy and righteous God. So I ask you again, who could hate this cross? Who else but those who prefer to place their trust in themselves and their own law keeping? The cross is an offensive stench to all those who seek after their own glory by seeking to justify themselves apart from the work of the Son of God. You see? This is because the cross says to the proud and to the haughty, you cannot save yourself. You are helpless and weak. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are filthy and defiled by your own sin. On your own, you are useless to God for his service. You must rely on the mercy of Almighty God and you must submit to his will. You need to abandon all other hopes and look upon the Son of Man who was lifted up on this cross and believe in Him to be saved. You are helpless on your own. And so the Judaizers, Judaizers they rejected that idea. They were proud, puffed up, and arrogant. They insisted that the cross alone wasn't sufficient for salvation. If they had their way, the faith that we preach, the faith that we love, grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, this faith would be stamped out and we would all be living under the heavy yoke of the old covenant, still today. And the cross of Christ would be emptied of his power. So this is what it meant for these Judaizers to be enemies of the cross of Christ. And 2,000 years later, we still have enemies of the cross of Christ. We still have those who say we should keep the Mosaic Law to varying degrees. But we also have those who are enemies of the cross in other ways. Think of the so-called prosperity gospel preachers that I mentioned earlier. They, for example, are repulsed, offended by the very idea that God's people should be called to suffer in any way. And they believe that God wants you to seek after your own happiness and pleasure in this life as your chief goal. So the truth is, they hate the cross. Because the cross also represents dying to oneself, does it not? Hating one's own life and following Christ through trial and suffering. Our Lord said, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. Jesus wasn't talking fun and games when he said that. The cross is a brutal instrument of pain, suffering and ultimately death. So while Jesus wasn't literally commanding us to take up crosses and carry them around, he meant that following him requires self-sacrifice and at least the death of one's own personal ambitions in favor of working for the glory of God, and at most it requires a, a, a suffering and literal bodily death at the hands of a world that is hostile to God and his people. 
The world hates our master and so they hate us too. So you see, none of these name it and claim it prosperity gurus would ever put themselves under the weight of a cross like that. They would never put themselves under the weight of a cross that could very well lead to persecution, poverty, and death. They hate, they hate that the cross of Christ represents that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They are not willing, like Paul, to share in Christ's sufferings and become like him in his death. They are not willing to fill up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the glory of God. And so they will never know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Therefore, Paul says of them, their end is destruction. That's pretty straightforward. Listen, if you reject the cross of Christ and all that it represents, then you are an enemy of the cross of Christ and all that it represents. And you will face the wrath of God in hell forever. For those who exhibit the characteristics that Paul lists here in verse 19, that is the only outcome. Paul goes on to say that their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These bad examples weren't driven or led by the Spirit, nor did they serve the Spirit. Rather, they were driven by their fleshly impulses. As unregenerate sinners, they were controlled only by the flesh and its desires. Things like sensual lusts, or the lust for power, or the lust for praise from men. So ultimately, they served themselves. The God of self was enthroned on their hearts rather than Jesus. And they glory in their shame. They are proud of that which makes them evildoers. The Judaizers took great pride in their law-keeping. They insisted on circumcision as necessary for salvation and celebrated that which Paul called mutilation of the flesh. Ultimately, they gloried in their self-righteousness, which, for sinful man, is shameful. Imagine barging into the courts of a great and magnificent king, wearing rags and covered in, in dung and filth, all the while cursing and boasting about how beautiful and glorious you were. It's shameful. It's delusional. But that, in effect, is what the Judaizers did by boasting in their own efforts at law-keeping as a means of salvation. And more broadly, we know that there are professing Christians who, for example, boast about how tolerant they are because they condone and encourage things like homosexuality and all other sorts of immorality. They take great pride in what is shameful. Brethren, Paul says, do not imitate such people. Paul also says that their minds are set on earthly things. This last statement really just emphasizes what he's already said. After all, where is their God? It's here on earth. It's their own selves. What do they glory in and take pleasure in? Their own earthly efforts at righteousness. Rather than seeking heavenly rescue from sin, they chose instead to try and make a way for themselves using earthly means. Eating only certain foods, spilling the blood of animals to atone for sins, mutilating themselves. Brothers and sisters, all these things in the Mosaic Law had their purpose from God, to be sure. They served to give us categories in which to think of our sin and God's holiness and show us our need for cleansing. 
but they were mere shadows of what was to come. Brothers and sisters, the substance belonged to Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the Savior from heaven. Again, He is not a Savior from the earth, but from heaven. Friends, those who favor what is earthly over that which comes from heaven are not to be imitated. This is Paul's warning. Now I know my message this morning has been pretty bleak so far, and that's to be expected when talking about sin. It's a sad thing to see how men make themselves enemies of God and rebel against Him. But now this is the point where things should get brighter as Paul gives us the contrast to these enemies of the cross. He says in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So after pointing out those who we are not to imitate, Paul shows us who we should imitate. Because all of the wicked traits of the bad examples are inverted in the believer. Rather than being enemies of the cross and having our minds set on earthly things, with earthly desires and an earthly focus, true believers in Christ are citizens of heaven. That's where our affection is. That's where our treasure is. For that is where our God is. Let me explain this idea of heavenly citizenship. And to do this, we need to remember the context in which the Philippians lived if we want to grasp the significance of what Paul is saying. So the city of Philippi was 800 miles or 1,300 kilometers from Rome. But it was a Roman colony, and so it had the same rights that were granted, granted to cities that were actually in Italy. So they used Roman law. They were exempted from the taxes that were imposed on non-Roman citizens. They dressed like Romans and so on. But most importantly, their residents had Roman citizenship. Now, just like I said, Rome was many hundreds of miles away. Yet, here were these people, listen, here were these people living as citizens of a faraway land. They identified not with where they currently were, but with Rome. That was the mentality of the people of Philippi. And so Paul draws on that cultural way of thinking that would have been very common in the Philippian culture to say to the believers in Philippi, Listen, don't be like those Judaizers who seek to save themselves by earthly means. Don't be like those who concern themselves chiefly with matters of food and drink and festivals and holy days and so much and so and such. This is how citizens of the earth think. That is how worldly people think. But you are citizens of heaven. You don't need to seek a savior from the earth where you currently are, but you are awaiting a savior from heaven, that faraway land to which you belong. Thus the Philippians were to understand that despite their current location and circumstances with all of its different cultures and influences trying to assimilate them, they were citizens of another land and were to keep to its culture and follow its laws and imitate its people. You understand? And most importantly, just as any citizen of a great nation is entitled to certain rights, the greatest right we have as citizens of heaven is the right of rescue at the hands of our King, Christ Jesus. And what a powerful rescue it will be. When He comes, He will transform our bodies to be like His. 
No more corrupt flesh warring against our spirit. No more sickness and disease. All of that is to be superseded by a glorified body that can never die. And this is the promise of the resurrection, brothers and sisters. This is the promise of eternal life and the prize that is the upward calling of God in Christ. This is the great destiny of the believer. Amen? So see that contrast again. The end of the enemies of the cross of Christ is destruction and hell forever. But the future of the believer is life in the new heavens and new earth forever. And our Lord Jesus does all this, Paul says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And what power is that? It's the power of God Almighty. The one true God will display his power on that day when he returns and he will put to shame all those whose God was their belly and all those who worshipped themselves. On that day, all will know that despite their sinful delusions, there was never any other God besides Yahweh, the great I Am, the Scripture. Brethren, all of these magnificent contrasts make it clear whom we ought to imitate. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, what kind of examples do you follow? Who do you imitate? Do they hate the cross of Christ by belittling its power to save and insisting on salvation by their own works? Or do they love the cross of Christ and seek to cling to it and all that it represents while trusting alone in Christ? Do they love themselves and seek after their own interests? Or do they treasure Christ above all else and seek to look after the interests of others? Do they take the greatest pleasure in their own righteousness, being full of pride? Or do they boast only in Christ and His work? Are they earthly minded? Seeking earthly treasures, earthly rewards, earthly solutions for their problems? Or are they citizens of a higher land who eagerly await higher treasures, higher rewards, and a higher salvation? Do they cry, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord? Where do they look to for salvation? From whence comes their help? So these are the questions that we must ask about others when evaluating our models. And it's what we must ask of ourselves when we know that we are seen as models to others. So if you know that you are not trusting in Christ, if you find that your thoughts, deeds, and desires tend to take after those who are enemies of the cross, then be warned, their end is destruction. And if you do not repent, that will be your end also. So turn from your sin. Turn from your self-righteousness, your idolatry, your worldliness, and place your trust in Christ. Believe that he lived a perfect life, offering to God the obedience that you failed to offer, and that he died on the cross to bear the punishment that you should have borne because of your sin. Believe that after three days in the grave, he rose to life again and is now in heaven, interceding for his people. And believe that he is coming again to save his own finally and fully from all sin. For those of us who are already trusting in Christ, seek to be like him by imitating those around you who are mature in faith. Get close to believers who know the word of God. Get close to believers who can teach you something by the way that they live. 
Do as Paul says and keep your eyes on them and walk as they walk the narrow way through the narrow gate that leads towards Christ and eternal life. Follow them closely. Brethren, Paul's hope for the Philippians in all of this was that they would learn from the good examples and so be unmoved in their devotion to the Lord to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first verse of chapter 4 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If the Philippians followed Paul's instructions and took care concerning whom and what they imitated, they would indeed continue to be his joy and crown. Paul could continue to rejoice in their salvation, and their God-glorifying life would continue to be for him a reward for all of the labor that he had put in on their behalf. So for us today, we ought to be moved by what we see here in this text, by how much love was being expressed by Paul through his admonition, how he wanted the Philippians to achieve the goal of steadfastness in the faith. So we too should seek the steadfastness in the faith that comes from imitating mature believers, following those who follow Christ, growing in the faith, so that even we may serve as good examples to those who are around us. 